him. Brethren, uh, this morning we're, we're now coming to the concluding verses of Philemon, and though a short epistle, this has been a powerful epistle that has helped us to consider the subject of the love of God and what that looks like in the life of a child of God. And so last Lord's Day, in order to consider the contrast of the, the love of the world versus the love of God, we considered what the love of the world actually looks like. According to Paul's uh, own writings to Timothy, he says that in the last days, difficult times will come, and he says, for men will be philatoi, lovers of self. You almost don't even have to read any further in some sense because once you realize that men by nature are lovers of self, you have to understand that is a rotten foundation. In fact, everything else that follows in the list is really from the rotten foundation of that self-love. They will be lovers of self, therefore what are they? They're lovers of money, they're boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and the list goes on. And then he says that they will be lovers of pleasure, literally philadenoi, lovers of hedonism. We talked about hedonism. Hedonism is all about me. It's all about my getting my satisfaction no matter what it costs. Even if I have to trample other people underfoot, I'm going to get my own. That is the spirit of hedonism. And so Paul helps us to understand in this epistle that that's the love of the world, but the love of God is entirely antithetical to that. In fact, it is an alien love that is really, truly not fully understood by human flesh and the human mind. That's why John says in 1 John 4, 16, he says, And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Meaning that in coming to faith in Christ, now as redeemed people, we now know and understand the love of God. What does that mean? That means before we came to faith, we didn't understand it. It was an alien love. And that's why at some point in time we're going to sing the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. A very powerful hymn that helps us to understand that in this world, the love of God is not known. The love of self alienates men from the true love that is from God. Because again, what men understand to be love is entirely distinct and different from the love of God. The love of God that has been poured out into our heart makes our, our hearts makes it so that God himself is first. The love that has been poured out into our heart makes it so that we have now a joyful servitude and a willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the glory of God. And a love that has come from God enables us to take up our cross and to follow the one who redeemed us each and every day by the grace of God. And the love that has been poured out into our hearts leads us to confess that it is better to give than to receive, as we reviewed last time. All these lessons of love we have been reviewing in this book of Philemon. And remember... Paul has been appealing to, making his appeal to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus, he says, for love's sake. His appeal was rooted in this concept of this alien love, this love that is from God. He says, therefore, 
Though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you. And Paul didn't want Philemon's choices and actions to be, as it were, by compulsion, as he said, but of your own free will. You know, we don't see the expression free will many times in the Bible, but here is one occasion in which we're talking about the will that is freed. For the child of God, it is the case that our will has been freed. We have been freed from the slavery of sin and death, and we are now free to do what? Live for ourselves? No, but to live for the one who redeemed us as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Brethren, all this is crucial. All this is crucial for our understanding about the nature of the child of God. And this is why when we think about this idea of having a will that is freed to serve Christ, remember this is the very concept of the messianic psalm, Psalm 110, which we're going to be going through at length as we go through the book of Hebrews, because the book of Hebrews, I would argue, is simply a commentary on Psalm 110. So get used to Psalm 110. We're going to be going through that psalm a lot. But in verse 3, we learn about the, the chief characteristic of the disciples of the Messiah. And that chief characteristic is this. It says, thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. Thy people will volunteer freely. In other words, it's their joy to serve and follow their king. It's not compulsion. It's not that they're doing things because they have to do things. They follow him because they want to, because it's their joy to do so. Brethren, I have to say, this is one of the most fundamental principles found in Scripture when it comes to this question of serving our Lord. We must consider our own heart attitude as we serve Christ and ask the question, Am I serving him out of compulsion or am I serving him willingly and joyfully? And we have to consider the fact that this is what God delights in. He delights in loyalty that is from the heart. This is exactly what he says in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 4. It says, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. It just vanishes. It's here for a moment, then it's gone. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. And then he says this, for I hafatz, delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You know, the Lord doesn't say many times what it is that delights him. But this is one of those occasions in which he says, this is what I delight in. I delight in servitude that is rendered unto me, that is, that is born out of a heart of loyalty to me, devotion to me, willing servants who love me. And I would suggest to you, brethren, but the fact that that's, that loyalty and willing servitude is what delights God, it's what pleases him, that's why we should consider from day to day to day in our lives whether or not we're serving the Lord 
with loyalty and joy and willingness or not. It's actually a very foundational concept. And this matter of thinking about what delights God, what satisfies him, is again to be our preoccupation. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 10, he says, as the children of God, he says, we are to be learning, learning, in other words, continually learning what is pleasing to him. And so whatever we do in life, we need to think about the question of, does this satisfy and please God? The question, the principal question is, does it make me happy? The principal question is, does this please God? And I would suggest to you, it's very easy to be distracted from that question, from that priority. But I believe that this book of Philemon helps us to stay grounded in this matter of serving the Lord, not under compulsion, but willingly, with loyalty. And so as we come to the conclusion of this epistle, we now find ourselves considering the very important question of obedience. Obedience. In verses 21 and 22, we review together the obedience of Philemon. Paul speaks of his confidence in the obedience of Philemon. He says this, having confidence in your obedience. That's a powerful statement. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And at the same time, also prepare me a lodging for I hope that through your prayers, I shall be given to you. That's a remarkable expression. We'll talk about that in just a moment. I shall be given to you. Then Paul reviews the obedience of other servants listed in the salutation of Philemon. He says in verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, he calls them, fellow workers. Very important moniker. He concludes in verse 25 simply saying, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thirdly, and at the end of our message here this morning, we'll consider the fact that there is actually a hidden warning in that salutation, in the list of names that he supplies, and we'll talk about that at the end. But first of all, consider with me this description of Philemon's obedience and Paul's confidence regarding his obedience. He says, again, he says, having confidence in your Obedience. Look at the language there. Paul uses the word pepoithos from the word pytho, speaking of the idea of persuasion or belief. One lexicon describes this word in this manner. It speaks of the idea of believing in something or someone to the extent of placing reliance or trust in or on the individual. It means to rely on, trust in, depend on, to have complete confidence in. Now, when it comes to complete confidence, uh, only God deserves that, right? Uh, we trust people to an extent, but God deserves complete confidence and trust. That's why it is most often used to speak of this idea of trusting God. In fact, Paul speaks of the temptation to trust himself versus this priority of trusting God. In 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 9, he says, Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. God alone deserves the ultimate trust 
and confidence that only he should receive. But this word is also used to speak of the confidence that we can have in others based upon the work of grace that is being accomplished in their lives. And for that, I would just give you, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses, verses 1 through 5. There, Paul speaks of the confidence that he had regarding the faithful saints who were at Corinth. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence, and here's the word pytho, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. What is he saying? He's saying, I have confidence, we have confidence in your progress, but it is not based upon who you are. It's based upon the God of all grace who has poured out his grace and love in you and who is sanctifying you for, for his own glory. This is an important consideration. The body of Christ, the church, needs to be about the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is not the message that if you become more moral and become better and, and do things and, and run the treadmill of obedience that somehow you're going to find your way to heaven in that process. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that we are weak and frail people incapable of pleasing God and only by divine intervention and salvation can we be made servants of the Most High. Again, by the grace of God. That's why I believe it's so dangerous when churches and preachers preach moralism, how to be a better person, and they, they don't emphasize the fact that, no, well, we do need to grow, we do need to increase in obedience, but how is this achieved? It's not by trying harder or pulling really hard on your bootstraps, it's by submitting to God and to the filling of the Spirit and the leading of God and depending upon the strength of whose might? His might. Because we don't have it. This is the expression of confidence that Paul is expressing regarding Philemon. He's not saying, you know what, you're just a cut above the rest of humanity and you know what, you're, you're, I have trust in you because you're just genetically different. No. Clearly and obviously this is not what he is saying. He's already talked about repeatedly about the faith and love that is found in his life. And this is all from the work of grace. Philemon was a man of faith and love, and that is to the glory of God. And Paul says, is basically saying, you know, I've watched you. I've known you for years. I've seen your obedience, and I've developed confidence in you, in the work of God, that is, in you. And therefore, he says, I write with this confidence of your obedience. Having confidence in your obedience, he says. Now, think about that word obedience. Uh, Scott almost stole the sermon this morning, but uh, not completely, but thank you for bringing up the foremost commandment. Because the word obedience is a construction of two words, hupo kuo. Hupo, the preposition means under, and a kuo means to hear. What is the foremost commandment? When we hear about the foremost commandment or we think about the foremost commandment, 
we immediately think of the idea of the imperative of love, loving God and loving our neighbor. Well, that's true, but you have to remember that the actual imperative is the imperative to hear. So when Jesus was asked the question, what is the foremost commandment, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and says, the foremost is here. You could put an exclamation mark next to the word here because that is the imperative. Now, why is this important? It's important because we need to hear from God before we know what we're to do. And we need to think about and contemplate who it is that we're serving before we even endeavor to serve God at all. In other words, who is this God that we're serving? In the foremost commandment, the initial statement that is given, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is Echad, one. There's an entire systematic theology in that one statement. He's our God, not because of our merit, but because of divine grace. And he is Echad, he is utterly unified in his person and work. And in order to render obedience, what do we need to do? In the Septuagint, the word akue is the imperative. Here. Here. The word obedience, again, is a construction of two words, hupo, underneath, and okuo. Why the, why the preposition? Well, because we hear God and we are to place ourselves beneath his authority as we do. We don't listen to God and just, you know, respond as a skeptic and say, you know, God, that's an interesting command, but I don't, I don't think it's all that important or relevant to my life. No, obedience, the heart of obedience, listens to the commandments of God and says, yes, sir. No soldier in an army is going to listen to his commander-in-chief and, and listen to a command and say, yeah, I don't know. That's not for me. If they did, they'd be out of the army, right? They'd be out of the military. We're the soldiers of Christ. And when he commands us, we need to hupokuo, listen and place ourselves under his authority. There's also another principle that we need to think about when we think about this word obedience. The entire nation of Israel heard with their ears the commandments of God but we're all doers of the word? We're all obedient? No, God destroyed many in the wilderness as a demonstration of the disobedience of many. This distinction between hearing, audibly hearing, and placing ourselves under what, beneath the authority of the one that we're listening to, this distinction is absolutely essential. And James gets into this distinction. He says this in James chapter 1 and verse 22. He says, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely what? Hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. According to James, 
The person who merely hears the word but does not respond in obedience is deluded. They're deluded. And then there's then the warning that comes in the next chapter is actually very grim because he then speaks of the individual who is so deluded that there's a question as to whether or not they're even a believer. Because he then says in James chapter 2 and verse 14, he says, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? And then he raises the question, can that faith save him? What's the ultimate answer that he produces in that chapter? The answer is no. This is not saving faith. This is not genuine faith. This is an individual who has learned words. He's heard words and he repeats the words and he can say the words and he can say that he has faith, but his faith is a contradiction to his life because there's no obedience. There's the hearing, but there's no doing. Brethren, I would suggest to you that this is a crucial principle for the body of Christ. While we cannot know perfectly and fully the hearts of others, we shouldn't even presume to do that. That's dangerous, by the way. While we can't know the hearts of others, we are called to evaluate the fruit of others. And while no one obeys God's commands perfectly, a child of God is on a pathway of growth and sanctification where they're learning to grow and obey the Lord in all that he commands. And this, therefore, helps us to understand this key principle. It takes time to know people. Paul knew Philemon. He had been with Philemon. He had been through some trials with Philemon. He had seen how Philemon acted and conducted himself, both personally and by distance through his correspondence. And he was able to express confidence regarding his obedience. But again, it takes time. The fact that we're called to observe fruit is actually a very fundamental principle of scripture. It's something that our savior taught the disciples. And he therefore teaches us. He says in Matthew chapter seven, in verse 17, he says, even so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, and here is the inferential particle that gives us the conclusion to what is being said here. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And such obedience is an expression of love for God. Again, Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. By the way, think of the distinction between the two. He doesn't just say, he who has my commandments, he it is who loves me. Judas heard the commandments and he had them in his mind. He learned them. He listened to them. Did he obey them? Did he keep them? No. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He it is who loves me. This is consistent with the lesson of James. We're not saved by our obedience, by our fruit, but our fruit is the evidence which reveals the root of our lives and the heart, ultimately. 
Watch an individual over time and you will learn about who they are by virtue of the fruit that they produce. That will tell you something about what is at the root of their being. And this is why it takes time to know others. When we meet a person off the street and they say, I'm a Christian, we take them for their word. With a spirit of hopefulness and a willingness to believe what they're saying, we accept what they're saying and say, oh, well, that's wonderful. But even Wednesday night at our, our Parsonage uh, uh, midweek wor worship time, we talked about this, this idea. And we talked about the fact that we're going to meet people who are going to say, yes, I'm a Christian. And then if you ask questions and probe a little bit further, you might find out that they're trusting in their works for their salvation rather than in Christ. Having been in the Bible Belt for 20 years, I can tell you, and by the way, it's not just there. We got it here too. People who will give you their resume and tell you that they're getting to heaven by virtue of what's on their resume. Rather than saying, I have no merit whatsoever. And my only hope is in Jesus Christ. But an individual's fruit is not irrelevant. Humanly speaking, as we're called to know them by their fruits, we are called to evaluate fruit in order to understand who the person is. Paul, having ministered with and having observed Philemon, having observed the fruit of his life, had confidence in him. Again, it's not centered in him. It's not a confidence that's rooted in Philemon. It's a confidence that God is working in him and through him as a servant of God. And so he says, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. That's a loving little goad. Say, brother, do the right thing and add a little bit more to it. Don't even forgive the debt. And this is why I suggested to you, I think he's probing here gently and lovingly for freedom, for Onesimus. And then he says, and at the same time, also prepare me a lodging. That's an instruction, by the way. I, you know, even with family, that, these two must have been very close, because I don't know about you, but even with family, uh, we'll ask, hey, uh, can, you, uh, can you guys... Uh, have us over for the night or, you know, we don't just instruct people to say, hey, you know what, make me a lodging. They must have really been close, okay? This is my suggestion to you. And then he says, for I hope that through your prayers, don't miss the language here, for I hope that through your prayers I shall be given to you. He doesn't say that through your prayers I'll, I'll, I'll end up showing up on your doorstep. You know, he says, I shall be given to you. It's a passive verb. The passivity points to the action and work of another. If he's going to show up on Philemon's doorstep one day, it's going to be because of the sovereignty of God. Brethren, this is the fundamental principle we've been seeing in this book from beginning now to the end. Paul has been telling us, he's been telling Philemon and us through Philemon that he has always been and ever will be in the sovereign hands of God. This is a principle that we need to understand as well. 
And so when Paul was in prison, he was there because he was delivered there by the hands of God. He was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He uses that expression three times in this epistle. Why am I in prison? Because of the Romans? Because of these circumstances or those circumstances? No, it is by the sovereign will of God that I'm here. When he was shipwrecked, he was there in the hands of a sovereign God. When he was beaten and left, left for dead, he was in the hands of, of a sovereign God. When he was abandoned by those who claimed to be servants of Christ, he was in the hands of the sovereign God. And when he was attacked by the Jews and the Gentiles, again, he was in the hands of a sovereign God. We are always in the hands of our sovereign Lord. And as the children of God, we need to remember that. How easy it is to forget that, and I confess it myself. It is too easy to forget that. But this is a principle that Paul understood, and he conveys it even in the language that he uses here. Hoping to be delivered, given, literally given, to Philemon. So this is Philemon's obedience and Paul's confidence in the obedience that he was seeing in his life. Paul then lists and speaks of the obedience of others listed in this salutation. He says in verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke. He says, my fellow workers, my co-laborers, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When he calls them fellow workers, he uses the word sunergoi, the word erg we use in physics to speak of the concept of energy that is required to move an object or displace an object a certain distance. We speak of joules and different units of energy, but erg speaks of energy or work. And what he's saying here is, is that these men, these individuals, they're not moving abiotic mass, they're moving the word of God, they're moving the gospel, they're advancing the message of Christ. We know of Luke. Luke is such a humble servant, beloved by the brethren. He refers to Luke as the beloved physician in Colossians 4.14. It's remarkable when you think about it, there's always kind of a, a modesty that we see in Luke inferentially. This is especially evident in his written record of Luke and Acts, especially in, in Acts. He's always there ministering with Paul, but you hardly know it. We don't hear much about him. He doesn't inject himself into the narrative except for what is necessary. Aristarchus, Paul mentions him in Colossians 4.10. And Luke records his co-labor of suffering with Paul. We read about that, particularly in, when Paul was in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 19, we read that the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions, from Macedonia. Brethren, I've been through a lot in the ministry, but I've never been physically dragged by anybody or beaten and left for dead. These men faced this. 
we read later in that same chapter that there was a single outcry that arose from the inhabitants of the city. Remember, they were chanting for two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. What a remarkable moment this was. And yet Aristarchus remained faithful even in the midst of this trial and calamity. Paul mentions Mark. And we know and understand and remember that this, there was once a strained relationship between Mark and Paul. And this would have been known by many at the time. While in Antioch, preparing for this, his second missionary journey, we read about this occasion of the strained relationship between the two. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The fact that Paul mentions Mark now as a co-laborer speaks of a change. Over time, there was demonstrated fruit in the life of Mark. The reservations that Paul had at one time were corrected and made better once Paul had greater confidence that he was in fact a faithful servant of Christ, and therefore he now calls him a co-labor, a fellow worker. Epaphras, who is mentioned in Colossians, appears to be a very remarkable man, very much like any other servant of God you would expect to be serving alongside the Apostle Paul. Paul speaks of Epaphras in, in his letter to the Colossians. In chapter 1, he refers to him as our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant or slave of Christ on our behalf. Brethren, what a wonderful commendation that is. If you know nothing, about, nothing else about Epaphras, he is a bond slave of Christ. Christ is first in everything that he does. Then at the end of that epistle in Colossians, he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. And notice the language here in verses 12 and 13. He says, that he is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Always laboring, earnestly laboring for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. We don't know much more about Epaphras, but... This is a man who had a deep and abiding burden for the people of God. So much so that he was always laboring earnestly in prayer. And what was he praying? Notice the prayer. Notice the details of the prayer. This tells you something about Epaphras. He was always praying, earnestly praying for them in his prayers that they would stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now think about the language there, and think about how Paul uses words like stand. The word stand is used oftentimes to speak of the believers stand rather than retreat, because those are the two options. It's typically a, a, a term that is used in a military context to speak of this idea of standing firm, 
rather than running away. Now, how in the world are we going to stand and fight the enemy unless we stand in the strength of his might? This is exactly what Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 6 when he speaks of the full armor of God that we're called upon to be adorned in. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to what? Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Then he says, therefore take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And then he says, having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore, repeats it. Having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And he goes on and talks about the armor of God. How are we going to stand in the battle? Well, we're going to stand and we can only stand if we stand in the strength of his might. And we can only stand if we are fully arrayed with the panoplyon, the full armor of God. We have no capacity to stand otherwise. We have no capacity to stand in opposition to evil unless we are standing in God's strength, fully arrayed. In, again, it's called his armor. Why? Because it's his provision. We don't make the armor. He made it, and he gives it to us. We're called to take it on and put it on. And that's his prayer. That's the prayer of Epaphras. That those at Colossae would stand, he says, perfect and fully assured of the, in all the will of God. There the word perfect speaks of the idea of an individual being complete or mature. In fact, Paul uses the same word, teleoi, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28 where he says, We proclaim him, that is Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. How are we going to be mature? How are we going to be complete? How are we going to be perfect or mature and complete? Well, it is by the wisdom of God. And how much of the wisdom of God? All wisdom. Not just the portions that we like, and not just the New Testament versus the Old Testament, or the Old Testament versus the New Testament, the whole counsel of God is what we need. In fact, this is exactly the very principle that Paul himself lived by. Paul was committed to preaching the whole counsel of God. And that's exactly what Epaphras was praying for. He's, again, he says, describing the prayer of Epaphras, he says that you may stand perfect and fully assured in how much of the will of God? All of it. All of it. When Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders before departing to Jerusalem, he says this to them, and he describes why it is that he had a clear conscience before God in his ministry. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. By the way, according to Paul's lexicon, what is profitable? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's what's profitable. 
I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. Then in verse 27 he says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. How much of holy writ is a, is a preacher to be committed to? All of it. It's not for me to pick and choose and say, you know what, um, guys, uh, I don't really like the book of James, so we're going to skip that. Or, you know, uh, the book of Genesis, I've heard this, uh, men, you know, uh, kind of whitewashing and hand-waving over the first three chapters of the book of Genesis and saying, you know what, well, that's just kind of an interesting fable. This happens in pulpits, and it is dangerous because just as Paul was committed to the whole counsel of God, Epaphras was praying that the people of God would be made to stand in all of the will of God, the whole counsel of God. And you'll notice that Paul, when he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, he said, I didn't shrink back from doing this. Why do men shrink back ever from preaching anything in the Bible? It's usually because of fear. Oh, if I preach this, they're going to get angry at me. I remember one uh, pastor uh, said, said that uh, he avoided Romans chapter 9 because that it had all that sovereignty stuff in it, you know, and he just didn't want to have to deal with the idea of talking about the sovereignty of God. So he just kind of did a, a hand wave over chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, and said, yeah, we'll just go on to chapter 10. By the way, you, the sovereignty of God is in the entire book of Romans. So if you want to skip the sovereignty of God, you're going to have to skip the Bible, actually, Right? No, it's not for the preacher to skip anything. The whole counsel of God has been given to us. It's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I don't know if you remember this, but in 2018, Andy Stanley said in a sermon that the Christian faith must be unhitched from the Old Testament. And he said that and stood by it and tried to explain himself. But at the end of the day, brethren, we're not to unhitch ourselves from anything Again, the whole counsel of God is what we need to be committed to. It's our anchor. It's the anchor to our souls, and we need it all. Luke, Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras. I left somebody out. Demas. And this is the, the hidden warning that we have in this list. Paul says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The interesting thing about Demas is that Paul calls him, includes him in the list of the, his fellow workers. That's a commendation. Demas is also mentioned in Colossians 4.14 along with Luke and the presumption, the idea is, is that he too was a fellow servant like Luke. But Paul in his final epistle before his death wrote to Timothy, warning Timothy of Alexander the coppersmith who did him much harm and of Demas who abandoned Paul out of his love for this present age. He says, Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, the noon Iona, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What's remarkable about that statement is that it stands as somewhat of a contrast to what is stipulated in the prior verses. 
because he exposes the love that was in the heart of Demas, that he loved this present age, but he speaks of the love that the child of God has for the appearing of Christ. So he says, in the future there is laid up for me, this is verse 8 of 2 Timothy 4, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's a great way of describing a child of God. A child of God loves Christ and loves the very reality of the fact that he's coming again. And that contrast helps us to understand something about Demas. Rather than loving the appearing of Christ, he loved this noon Iona, this present age, and therefore abandoned Paul in the ministry. William Hendrickson, I think, summarizes it well when he says, Demas left because he fell in love with the present age, the world on this side of the grave, the transitory era which, in spite of all its pleasures and treasures, will soon be past. This is why I call the mention of Demas a hidden warning. Did Paul, when he wrote to Philemon, did he know that this was going to happen? No. At the time that he wrote to Philemon, he called Demas a fellow worker. As far as he knew, he was a faithful servant. But remember what we said earlier, time tells all. It takes time to see fruit. It takes time to see who an individual is by virtue of their conduct. And so when Jesus says you will know them by their fruit, we know and understand that you don't just plant a tree and, and stand outside and wait for five minutes and say, okay, well, where, where's the fruit? It takes time for the tree to grow and develop fruit. Well, that's the concept. It takes time to see what that tree will bear. In a sense, this is the lesson of Judas. How many disciples were there? When we read through the Gospels, we know there are 12, and then there are 12, and there are 12, and there are 12, and there are 12, and then, 12, and then we get to the end of the Gospels, and we realize, well, there are really only just 11. Genuine, we would say, disciples. But one was called the son of perdition, because even though the rest of the disciples didn't know who he was, it took time to see the fruit of who he really was. And brethren, I will say more about this and other lessons from the book of Philemon in a final and concluding message next Lord's Day.